Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not so scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS, fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. And welcome back to the Off the Bench podcast. I'm Sophia Chandrasekhar, one of your hosts. Today's episode was created and produced by April Shields of the Leadership Academy Class of 2021. Congrats to the Leadership Academy Class of 2021 on their recent graduation and completion of the program. In this PACE episode, she brings on Lucy Birdie, who shares with us her knowledge and expertise in laboratory quality management as she covers the top 10 deficiencies in laboratory accreditation and some tips and resources on how to address them. Now, to obtain CE credit for this episode, please go to labducate.org slash courses. That's L-A-B-U-C-A-T-E dot org slash courses, where the CE credit is always free for ASCLS members. April, take it away. Lucy Berte has always been interested in laboratory quality management, having served as a blood bank manager, the laboratory's quality coordinator, an inspector for the CAP, and an assessor for the AABB. She teaches medical laboratories how to implement a quality management system, use it to improve patient safety, and use it to reduce the cost of poor quality. She trains laboratorians how to write better documents and how to design more effective training and competence assessment programs. She shows that quality thinking provides many tools to reduce and eliminate laboratory inspection deficiencies. Today, Lucy Berte is presenting the 10 most common laboratory deficiencies, tools to resolve and prevent them. Thank you, April, and good day to everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Every few years, I or one of my quality management colleagues asks the major U.S. laboratory accreditation organizations to share their compilations of the top 10 deficiencies revealed in their accreditation assessments for the previous calendar year or 12 months. So at my request this past February, four organizations sent me their top 10 lists for 2020, and these lists form the basis for this podcast. So here's what I'd like you to be able to do after today's program. First, I'd like you to remember and list at least four of the most common laboratory accreditation deficiencies. And second, describe at least one key quality tool that helps solve many accreditation deficiencies. And third and last, access resources that guide in resolving deficiencies. And I'll be providing information throughout the podcast that will answer these questions. So if you are a laboratory supervisor, manager, or director, Think about the answers to these three questions. First, what kinds of deficiencies has your laboratory experienced in the past two accreditation assessments? Second question, has your laboratory experienced the same deficiency in more than one accreditation assessment? And third question, has the same deficiency appeared in more than one laboratory discipline? For example, automated testing and also in microbiology, in blood bank and also in anatomic pathology. So think about those questions as we go through the program today. 
Requirements for medical laboratories exist for two very important reasons. With the first reason being that following the requirements leads to higher quality laboratory services and also reduce risks to patient safety. The reason we exist, our laboratories exist, is to serve our patients. There are two kinds of requirements in the medical laboratory environment, mandatory requirements and voluntary requirements. And now I'm going to talk about each of those. So mandatory requirements come from federal, state, and possibly local regulations and laws. With the first in the United States being the Code of Federal Regulations, which is abbreviated CFR. And it has both a number and a part. The most familiar regulatory requirements for medical laboratories is 21 CFR Part 493, which is the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments of 1988, better known as CLIA 88 or abbreviated just as CLIA. It details the requirements for laboratory registration, laboratory personnel, pre-analytic, analytic, and post-analytic phases of the laboratory's workflow, and proficiency testing for all disciplines. It's really important to understand that CLIA requirements are minimum quality requirements for laboratories. You can always do more, but you cannot do less. The second mandatory requirement is 29 CFR Part 1910. It contains the requirements from the United States Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And this is an extensive set of requirements. It includes those with respect to medical laboratories, hazardous materials, hazardous and toxic substances, hazardous communications, personal protective equipment, we abbreviate as PPE, environmental controls, fire protection, materials handling and storage, electrical, bloodborne pathogens, and other requirements that apply to medical laboratories. If your laboratory has a blood transfusion service or collects human blood or blood components from donors, then 21 CFR, Parts 210, 211, and 606 also apply. And these parts contain the federal regulations for these activities. And the Food and Drug Administration considers human blood as a drug, and it regulates this drug under the Pharmaceutical Good Manufacturing Practice Regulations. So it's a good idea to have a copy of these requirements and follow them. Other federal regulations also apply to laboratories, but these three are the most important for most laboratories. You need to understand and implement these requirements. In addition, you will need to check your own state's requirements for laboratories and determine also whether any local requirements apply. Now, the second type of requirements for laboratories are the voluntary requirements published by the laboratory accreditation organizations. There are a number of different laboratory accreditation organizations, but today I'm only going to talk about the four major ones. 
I will explain what they accredit and I will provide the name of the document in which you can find the published requirements. So AABB was formerly called the American Association of Blood Banks, but because it is now an international organization, they've just branded themselves AABB. Their requirements document is titled, quote, Standards for Blood Banks and Transfusion Services, end quote. And it specifies requirements for human blood collection and transfusion. Accreditation to AABB standards includes, but is a big step above the CLIA requirements and the good manufacturing practices of 21 CFR parts 210, 211, and 606. The next major accreditation organization is the College of American Pathologists, abbreviated CAP, and it has a series of laboratory discipline-specific checklists, and, the, and those encompass not only all the CLIA requirements, but also a higher quality level of technical requirements for clinical anatomic, cytopathology, and biorepository laboratories. Many US labs and even international laboratories are accredited by the CAP. The third organization was formerly called the Commission on Office Laboratory Assessment, but now known only as the abbreviation COLA. The COLA accreditation manual is their published document. It contains all the CLIA requirements and additional quality and technical requirements. COLA organization accredits many physician office laboratories and smaller clinics and hospital laboratories. Last but not least is the Joint Commission, which is known for its hospital accreditation program, and that program includes a laboratory component. Their document is entitled the Comprehensive Accreditation Manual for Laboratory and Point-of-Care Testing, abbreviated CAMLAB, and it incorporates all the CLIA requirements with additional quality and technical requirements. Many hospital laboratories choose to achieve joint commission accreditation because that's what their hospital does. So now I'm going to shift to talk about a deficiency. What is a deficiency? So deficiencies are cited by the person or persons performing the external accreditation assessment. And depending on the individual organization, this person could be called an investigator, an inspector, an assessor or a surveyor. So those are the people, let's talk about what they find when they come into your laboratory. What is a deficiency? Four conditions define a regulatory or accreditation deficiency. The first condition is, of course, your laboratory fails to fulfill a regulatory or accreditation requirement. What this means is that your laboratory needs to provide objective evidence in the form of documents, records, and assessor observations that it fulfills the requirement. And when your laboratory fails to do so, you are cited as with a deficiency. The second condition of deficiency is when an on-site assessor observes an action in your laboratory that is contrary to a requirement. The third condition 
is that a deficiency will be cited when your laboratory's document, meaning policy, process, procedure, form, label, tag, or job aid, those are documents, or a record, which is a completed computer screen or a filled in paper form, label, or tag. When either of those, when any of those don't meet the requirements, you could be cited for a deficiency. The fourth condition for deficiency is cited when your laboratory cannot produce any objective evidence that a requirement's been fulfilled. You cannot merely say that your laboratory does or has done something um, and then not provide any objective evidence. So any of those four conditions you might experience will uh, cause you to have a deficiency. So how do, do deficiencies happen? Well, there are several reasons why they happen. Let me run through. Again, it's a numbered list. First, simple ignorance of the requirement. However, it's your laboratory director and laboratory management's responsibility to access and know the applicable requirements and design the actions needed to fulfill them. Let me say that again. You, are, you need to know what the requirements are and you also need to design your processes in a way that the actions to fulfill the requirements are built into the process, not separate from the process. And that is laboratory director and management's responsibility. Ignorance of a requirement is never accepted as an excuse for a deficiency, especially now that almost all information laboratories need about what the, what the requirements are is available online. The second, how do deficiencies happen? Your laboratory's documented policy, process, or procedure is not current with the requirements. Another reason to always keep current with the requirements and you'll need to make adjustments to your documents accordingly. So whenever a new checklist or set of standards is published, you are always notified by the accreditation organization and it's your laboratory man management job to review the requirements for any changes that affect your management and technical processes. So you get electronic or paper notifications and you access the new checklist or set of standards. Uh, someone needs to do a comparison of new versus old, looking for changes. These days, the, organ the accreditation organizations um, mostly very clearly tell you where the changes are, which makes it a lot easier for you to find the appropriate documents in uh, your laboratory's policies, processes, and procedures, and make the changes necessary to meet the requirement. So the third way a deficiency happens is that the action needed to fulfill the regulatory or accreditation requirement was not built into the uh, process or procedure. For example, what actions have you built into your laboratory's critical value reporting process that ensures that all critical or alert values have been communicated and recorded as such. So it's one thing to write a statement as a policy, like our laboratory reports all critical and alert values. 
and records the receipt by the notif notified party. That is a statement of intent. What needs to happen is that intent needs to turn into action. And when there is no process or procedure instruction for that action happening, it's not likely it will happen with any regularity. And if an assessor observes that or comes across that, you will have a deficiency. The fourth way deficiencies happen is when laboratory personnel make deviations from an approved process or procedure. The problem is that these deviations have not been validated to ensure that the process or procedure still meets the requirements and works as intended. It is not okay for people to make it up as they go along. And the fifth way deficiencies happen is when your laboratory or a person willfully disregards a requirement altogether because they perceive it's too hard or simply don't want to do it. So I highlighted five ways for you that deficiencies happen in your lab. Again, I'll just nudge you a little bit to think about the deficiencies you've had in your last two accreditation assessments and then uh, think about these questions and go through your deficiencies and say, how did this happen? Why, which one of these reasons for deficiencies happen applied to us here or here and here? What I'm going to go through now is probably going to sound really boring, but this is a talk about the 10 laboratory deficiencies. So I'm going to share with you that each for each of those four accreditation organizations, what they had in their top 10 for 2020 or the previous 12 months um, before March of this year. But I want you to listen to these lists for two issues. The first issue, as I read through the 10, top 10 deficiencies for each of these four accreditation organizations, listen for these two issues with the first issue being, which deficiencies are listed by every accreditation organization? And second, which deficiencies has your laboratory experienced in its most recent accreditation assessment or Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services CLIA inspection? So now let me share with you the top 10 deficiencies from the College of American Pathologists probably one of the wider or widest used accreditation organizations for laboratories in the United States. So their number one was that the test activity menu is not current. Uh, your laboratory is required by CLIA to have a completely up-to-date list or menu of all the tests your laboratory performs that needs to be reported to the CAP because they are an organization deemed by CLIA as equivalent. And when your test method, sorry, test menu is not current, uh, that can be a deficiency. And so your laboratory needs to have a process for whenever you're adding a test or deleting a test or combining tests or changing platforms, whatever, that someone is responsible for checking the test menu and ensuring it is current. Deficiency number two, competence assessment program. And you know that there are six ways that CLIA wants competence assessed on an ongoing basis. 
And there are many, many different types of deficiencies associated with competence assessment program. You'll see as I go through the other organizations that um, some of them break out competence assessment into more detail, but here the CAP has lumped them all together. All the problems with competence assessment are deficiency number two on their top 10 list. Number three is document control. The documents are not current or there are uncontrolled copies floating around the lab. I call those drawer copies, pocket copies, locker copies, cabinet copies, something stuck to a bulletin board, anything that's not controlled with an effective date and some indication that it is uh, derives directly from the original approved document. And the other document control issue is um, the unavailability of a manual that's complete for its intent. So for example, um, a bench manual for microbiology that doesn't have some documents in it that need to be there for the work done at that bench. That's number three. Here's number four, equipment maintenance and function checks. No procedures at all, or the procedures are performed but not to the schedule recommended by the manufacturer. Or you do it, you record it, something didn't work and there's no record of any corrective actions taken. So those are the um, common deficiencies associated with maintenance and function checks. Number five is comparability of instruments and methods. So there's a clear requirement that every so many months, I think it's six months, you, if you have a test method that's done on different uh, types of instruments or different instrument platforms, you have to um, you take known specimens and run them on both platforms and see what kind of results you get. And so the deficiency CAP is citing for this one is that there's no stated acceptance criteria. Like what is the acceptable gap between the results on two different platforms that will um, al allow the results to be equivalent for the purpose of uh, diagnostic or therapeutics for patients, or there's no review at all of the comparability of those results. That would be the laboratory supervisor or manager or laboratory director review. And then the third part of this number five is um, there are unacceptable comparisons, but nothing was done about them or no documented corrective action about what was done. So that was number five for CAP. Here's number six for CAP. Proficiency testing and alternative performance assessment results. So CLIA has quite an extensive list of what each laboratory discipline must do for proficiency testing on a scheduled basis. And the parts of proficiency testing that CAP cites as most efficient are um, they didn't do it at all, or there was no corrective action of results that um, were out of, um, out of range of what the report, this, the proficiency testing report stated was acceptable, or no review by the laboratory director. Number seven is no proficiency testing attestation statement. So there, every time you do P, 
T, someone needs to sign that they did the test, they followed the procedure as they would for a patient with the exception of you know, critical value reporting and referring to someone else and all the other things CLIA doesn't allow. But there was no signed attestation statement. That's number seven. Here's number eight. Records reviews of instruments and maintenance records by the supervisor. So there needs to be in the supervisor's process for what he or she does in their job. They need to have a process that ensures that QC records, PT records, equipment maintenance um, and function records, temperature records, and all those kinds of records are reviewed on a regular basis and that there's a way for them to not forget to do that. That's what's needed is the process for ensuring that that gets done. Number nine is reagent labeling. Um, and this is when you're supposed to put the open date and where applicable the expiration date and also reagent labeling in the refrigerators as to um, what has been verified with acceptance testing for use versus unverified uh, reagents and uh, expired versus unexpired reagents. And number 10 on the CAP list is um, biennial review of technical policies and procedures. So what used to be annual review was changed a number of years back to biennial, meaning every two years of technical policies and procedures. Now, certainly if your document management system is set up in a way that when you change a document, it is being reviewed as part of that change. And so there is a date of the change and the document will have been reviewed in that two year period. What laboratories seem to forget is all the unchanged documents in that two year period need to at least be looked at to ensure that they are okay as is, and that needs to be recorded in some fashion. So those are the top 10 from CAP. My two questions were, think about this. Have you had any of these, um, these deficiencies yourself? Now let's talk about COLA. They are the other laboratory, big laboratory accreditation organization. They do physicians, offices, clinics, and um, mostly laboratories in smaller size hospitals. Here's their top 10. Number one. Lack of competence assessments. Number two, the laboratory director is not fulfilling the PT responsibilities for the position. So CLIA requirements have very specific laboratory director responsibilities. And when that is not being witnessed by the COLA surveyor, by um, signed and approved documents, any indication of review or follow-up action by the lab director, that's cited as a deficiency. So that's lab director not fulfilling PT responsibilities for the position. Number three is the technical consultant is not fulfilling responsibilities of that position. So you know that CLIA has very specific job titles. However you name that person in your laboratory, there are specific functions that need to be filled by people with certain CLIA names and technical consultant is one of them. Whether that is a person in your laboratory or a person your laboratory contracts with from outside, such as a, um, a person whose business is technical consulting for small laboratories, uh, 
not fulfilling the responsibilities of the position. Again, CLIA has very specific requirements for that job title. Number four, back to the lab director, not fulfilling quality control and quality assurance responsibilities for the position. So now we have lab director being cited twice for PT and for QC, QA and not doing what they're supposed to do. Number five is testing personnel not fulfilling responsibilities for the position. Now, COLA hasn't gone into detail about this one, but whenever it finds uh, through its assessments, someone who's doing something they shouldn't be doing or not doing something, yeah, someone who is not doing something they should be doing or vice versa, it's cited as a deficiency. So in the top five there, Number one's competence assessments, but the next four are what people are supposed to be doing according to CLIA. So what that means is your job descriptions and your training programs need to include those requirements. That is um, the process or the means by which people know how not to be deficient here. Number six, lack of review of proficiency testing results with uh, personnel, testing, and supervisory personnel. So it's not enough that the lab director reviews the results and files them. People are supposed to know what their proficiency testing performance was so that they can understand where the problems are so the problems can be fixed. Number seven, not retaining PT attestation statements signed by the lab director and testing personnel. Hmm, have you heard this before? Number eight, not performing calibration verification as required. So every, I believe it's six months, CLIA requires that um, if full calibration is not due, a calibration verification needs to be performed to ensure the instrument is still in cal. Number nine, not verifying the accuracy of analytes when the PT score assigned doesn't reflect the accuracy of the laboratory's test performance. So here's another one about proficiency testing. And number 10, lack of documented review of quality control for quantitative tests using statistical parameters to assess continued accuracy and precision of the method. So again, Supervisors, managers, lab directors need to build in a process into their job. See, doing these reviews is not in addition to your job. It's part of your job to do the reviews of equipment function checks, temperature checks, here quality control checks, looking at the statistical methods used to ensure the accuracy and precision of the methods. Did you notice in these top 10? Three alone separately were just for proficiency testing, whereas for CAP, they lumped them all into one major deficiency. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about the Joint Commission. So here are the top 10 deficiencies noted by the Joint Commission for 2020. They did not break out any kind of detail like the others did. Uh, so... Think about what you're gonna hear now. Number one, competence assessment. Number two, proficiency testing participation. Number three, completeness of the laboratory report. Are, 
is all required information in every report all the time. And then the Joint Commission, of course, does what they call tracer audits. So they will come in and randomly select some specimens and um, the test orders for those specimens and work, go through the entire laboratory workflow and look at everything um, to see that everything that must be done was done. Number four, instrument and method comparisons. So you, you heard me mention comparability testing already once. Number five, equipment inspection, testing and maintenance, meaning was it done? Was it done according to the schedule? Were, were outlying results noted and was action taken on outlying results? Number six, proficiency testing, handling, and I'm sorry, proficiency testing, yes, handling and testing process. Bringing the materials into the laboratory, handling them, distributing them for testing and doing the testing. Number seven, records of participation in PT programs as needed for your laboratory's test menu. Number eight, QC testing. No detail here, just think about all the things you've already heard about QC testing. Number nine, storage, preparation, evaluation, and tracking of reagents. And number 10, calibration verification. I certainly hope at this point, after three of these organizations, you are hearing and noting the common themes. And what did you notice here about proficiency testing? Again, three of the 10 deficiencies are related to PT. Last but not least, and I put blood banking last because um, the other three organizations look at all the entire laboratory whereas the AABB comes and looks only at the transfusion service or the donor side called blood bank and transfusion services. Number one, active involvement of the medical director in transfusion service functions, such as uh, the documents, you know, the policy process procedure documents, uh, the blood utilization function, however that's structured in your organization the medical director uh, assigned to blood banking needs to be actively involved. And this, this one always gets me because when I was working in the blood bank, um, it was a blood bank, we did donors and then later became just a transfusion service. We had a medical director and every year, just about every year or two years, the medical director would change and that's because None of our pathologists wanted to be the blood bank medical director. So what they did was they always picked the newest pathology employee, like the newest graduate from the pathology residency program and dumped that person into the blood bank because nobody else wanted to do it. So I remember year after year after year training my medical director in what that person needed to do so we could maintain our AABB accreditation. Number two is um, emergency plans do not include the inoperability of the primary location. So many blood bank emergency plans is what are you going to do if your primary blood supplier can't get blood to you so you have a secondary supplier. But this deficiency is about what are you going to do 
when your compatibility testing laboratory or your refrigerators or freezers are completely unavailable to you. Number three, incomplete competence assessments. Number four, not following the manufacturer's equipment instructions. Number five, process changes are not controlled. There's incomplete documentation. Number six, PT problems. Number seven, QC reviews are not timely. Number eight, material storage, one to six degrees and two to eight degrees. And what they meant there was that if the package insert specifically said reagents needed to be stored at two to eight degrees centigrade, but you put those reagents in a one to six degree refrigerator, your reagents were being stored at least one degree below its acceptable temperature. Number nine, document reviews were incomplete. They were untimely or they were not done by an authorized person. And number 10, records reviews were present, but the record was missing a data entry. And what they meant by that was the supervisor said she reviewed the record, but um, on three occasions, uh, the temperature of the refrigerator wasn't even on the record with no indication of what that meant. So those are the top 10 by the AABB. Now, I know this is a podcast and you're not able to see all the deficiencies listed on the screen in front of you, but I hope you were carefully listening to the deficiencies that were common across all these organizations. And my first question was, which deficiencies were common across all four accreditation organizations? These deficiencies appear in every organization's list. They are not in rank order, uh, but they're just a listing. Competence assessment, proficiency testing, document management, instrument maintenance and function checks, and records reviews. Here was my second question. Which deficiencies has your laboratory experienced in the most recent accreditation assessment or CMS inspection? Was the same deficiency cited in more than one laboratory discipline in the same assessment? Or has your laboratory experienced this same deficiency in the previous or other past assessments? So that's your homework. Go home and think about that in your lab. Moving on here. So now you know what the top 10 deficiencies are for the major laboratory accreditation organizations. I've shared with you the most common elements across those organizations. And you should now be asking yourself the question, how can we prevent these deficiencies? Well, the first way is to have documented laboratory management processes and procedures. So just as the pre-analytic analytic and post-analytic technical workflow processes have documents that you all call SOPs, laboratory managers and supervisors should also have process and procedure documents for their laboratory management work. Often this is in the form of what laboratories call an administrative manual. Does your laboratory have a document in your administrative manual that describes the proficiency testing process, the complete process, does it cover all the activities from the time of initiating or renewing an annual subscription all the way through 
testing, reporting, receiving the, the provider's report, evaluating the results, and following up on the results received back from the provider? Does your management manual have a document that describes that entire process and who does what and when? Does your laboratory have a complete documented process for how to develop an alternative assessment program when you can't obtain PT materials from an improved provider? Do the PT and alternative assessment processes cover who does what, when, and how, and include all applicable parties from the testing person all the way up to the laboratory director? How about document management? When you think about it, each of your laboratory's documents has a birth to death sequence. Does your administrative manual have a documented document management process? a documented document management process that starts when the need for a new document arises and proceeds through all of the actions of writing the document, verifying that it works, approving the document, implementing it in the live environment, period, periodically reviewing in that biennial period or changing it when a revision is needed and then archiving documents that have come to the end of their lives, retaining the document for the document retention time, and then destroying the document. Do you have a process that describes all of this in your administrative manual? So when your laboratory has and follows a documented management sequence, like the ones I just described for proficiency testing and for document management, it's less likely that you'll be cited for deficiencies. Conversely, when there's no documented process and section supervisors each do their own thing, micro is different than blood bank thinks they're different from automated testing and they think they're different from specimen receiving, there's bound to be gaps and these will arise as deficiencies when the assessors appear. There is an organization, the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute, which is uh, website www.clsi.org, has current guidelines, current meaning within um, the previous five years, everything in CLSI is within the previous five years, and they include good practice recommendations for how to meet regulatory and, uh, and accreditation requirements for, amongst many others, let me specify, they have one document for proficiency testing and alternative assessment, a complete document for document management, and another uh, a number of other important management processes such as equipment management. Each piece of equipment in your laboratory has a birth to death sequence and have you organized all your equipment records in that order? And do you follow that birth to death sequence? for equipment. CLSI has guideline documents for how to fulfill regulatory and accreditation requirements for training and competence assessment programs and for supplier and inventory management. So these guidelines and many others are developed by CLSI volunteers and they help laboratories like yours prevent having accreditation assessment deficiencies. So I'm not selling you a product here, 
I am pointing you to a resource that can help you solve many of your ongoing or repeated accreditation assessment deficiencies. It also needs documented technical processes. Uh, and these are the processes directly related to pre-analytic, analytic, and post-analytic and laboratory testing. So a documented technical process is not an analyte-based SOP. A process document is a picture, a depiction, usually in the form of a flowchart or a process map. And the process map graphically presents the sequence of activities for a specific laboratory testing process, such as respiratory cultures in microbiology from the time the specimen is received in the microbiology lab. It's a process flowchart of all the things that need to happen through culture and identification through reporting the results, preliminary and final reports. In blood banking, we have uh, antibody identification, which is a process um, from the time the antibody is discovered through screening all the way through sending out the report of the antibody and its clinical significance. And certainly anatomic pathology frozen section is a process, it's a sequence of activities for example, another example, collecting a blood specimen by, by venipuncture is not an SOP that's 45 pages long. It is a sequence of discrete activities that is best depicted in a flowchart rather than a, a long verbal SOP that people don't read and will not memorize. And especially for setting up and running an automated analyzer, it's the analyzer that does the bilirubins and the cal calciums and the glucoses and the LDHs. You don't need an SOP for a glucose. The analyzer does the glucose. What's, what's much more valuable to the laboratory is for personnel to know the correct sequence for starting up the instrument, the daily maintenance, the reagent loading, waste disposal, specimen loading, results review, recognition of alert values, follow-up, and a release for auto-verification if that's done, and then shutdown in that order because that's the way the work flows through the analyzer in the laboratory. These actions are in sequence and that's a process. So using flowcharting software, any process can be depicted and often when we do this correctly, you can get the entire process on one page. For every process I've mentioned up to this point, the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute guidelines has a one-page process chart, and I will refer you to them. The flow chart then is supplemented with much shorter written instructions for the sequential actions in the process. So again, I point you um, to, to CLSI and the nice thing about those flowcharts is you can customize them to your laboratory sequencing. You know, the adult education literature emphasizes that most adults are visual learners. I think they say 80% or more adults are visual learners. Thus, people are much more likely to read, understand, and follow a process flowchart document 
with short and succinct instructions for the, the discrete activities than they are to read and memorize multi-page SOPs, which I'll tell you the assessors always find problems with. Process documents also make training and competence assessment programs much easier to manage. And we have found that there are fewer competence assessment deficiencies when we use the training, the, the flowcharts for microbiology and setting up analyzers and antibody identification and, the, and uh, blood specimen collection or capillary specimen collection. When we use those flowcharts and use them as the basis for competence assessment, there are far fewer deficiencies. So the third um, way to prevent laboratory deficiencies is to ensure that when there is a new or changed process, your laboratory follows a defined change management plan. So I'm sorry, again, here's a bunch of numbers because everything is sequential. Everything flows in an order. Here's a change management plan. It has a general sequence and this sequence applies to anything new or changed in your laboratory. So flowchart the newer changed process. And uh, one, more than one of the CLSI guidelines has a nice appendix that tells you how, how to create a flowchart, a simple way for how to create a flowchart. That's number one. Number two, if you do the flowchart correctly, each box in the flowchart tells you where the instructions are needed. And then step three is you draft those instructions, those procedures, step one, step two, step three, into the approved laboratory document template, your template. And then you would design any forms, labels, or tags needed to do that procedure. And you would do that for each box or each procedure in the flowchart. Then step four is that you validate that those procedures work as intended. You're going to practice them. You're gonna do a pilot test to make sure you're gonna hand that draft document to someone and say, please do this procedure and see if you get to the correct end result. And they, they will find where information is missing or it's in the wrong place or the sequence doesn't work. So can they determine whether the actions that you drafted into those procedures, process and procedures documents provide the correct end result? Number five here in the, the um, change management process, number five, finalize the procedures in your document management system. Go through all the proper approvals and entry into your electronic system or paper-based system. Number six is you train the people who will work in that process using the process flowchart and procedures. Number seven, you, before they go live, you perform an initial assessment of competence after training and before the person works independently in the process. Number eight is that you monitor process performance. And we do this through quality indicators, which are measurements of parts of pre-analytic, -pre analytic, and post-analytic workflow. We can measure process performance through occurrence reports, through complaint management, and through something called an internal audit, if you're familiar with that. Joint Commission calls them tracer audits. Don't wait for the Joint Commission assessor, surveyor, sorry, surveyor to come in and do your tracer audit. 
do your own tracer audits and then you will easily find where uh, things aren't working the way they're supposed to. And you monitor people performance through ongoing competence assessment, a clear requirement. And number nine in the change management plan is to improve the process when the people monitoring and the process monitoring um, show their, their performance does not meet expectations. So that's number three, laboratory way to avoid deficiencies. Number three is to have a defined change management plan. And I gave you that in nine steps. Let's move on to the next one. So number four is to analyze the information collected from internal assessments. For example, your lab should be collecting data about the number and source of unacceptable specimens. Your laboratory should be collecting data around turnaround times for key test methods. Your laboratory should be collecting data about the number and types of reporting errors and looking at the processes that caused all these problems. So when you think of a process as input, process, output, the input, if, you're, if you have specimens coming in that aren't acceptable, you can't really go on from there in a timely manner. So that is something you want to measure. You want to measure turnaround time. How long is it taking you to get results out to your customers, patients, practitioners? And your output, the laboratory's output is a report of results. How many times do you send out that report and you have to call it back and correct it because of an error or a problem in the report? Those are called quality indicators, and you should, at a minimum, measure one thing in pre-exam, which you call pre-analytic, analytic, and post-analytic, because that's a clear requirement. Your laboratory should also be monitoring non-conforming event, which you call occurrence reports and complaints. Um, too many labs record the occurrences but then they never study them to look for the underlying trends and patterns of which processes are giving them the most problems. And a very effective way of whether your laboratory process is meeting requirements is to perform a tracer audit. And I've already mentioned that. Randomly select your own specimens, two weeks ago, one month ago, six months ago, pick one, walk through everything that was supposed to have happened. And so, it, at a minimum, this would include looking at the training and competence assessment records of the person doing each process or procedure as that specimen moves through the system. Looking at the equipment temperature, maintenance, and calibration records as applicable to the specimens you selected. Looking at the most recent PT records for, the for a test method looking at the effective dates of the, of the documents that were in effect at the time you picked that specimen, and all the related records for completeness and correctness. That's doing your own internal tracer audit, and it's so much better to catch the information before the external assessors do. So analyzing quality indicators, looking for trends and patterns of occurrences and complaints, and performing your own tracer audits are one of the best ways ever of making sure you don't have deficiencies. So here's a last most um, effective way to minimize 
eliminate problems that cause deficiencies in your lab. And that is to have a laboratory-wide quality management system. I do not have time to talk about that today. But what I can tell you is that in a quality management system, management processes, what the laboratory directors and managers are responsible for setting up. They are documented, they function as intended, and those processes, the equipment birth to death process, the document birth to death process, the proficiency testing birth to death process, support the laboratory's technical workflow processes. So if you have an equipment management program that can prevent deficiencies due to missing pipette calibrations or missing equipment records, you can't find the equipment records, or the records weren't being reviewed in a timely manner by supervisors. So again, Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute uh, has a guideline for a quality management system. I'll just tell you the name and number, and if you're interested, you can go there. It's guideline QMS, Quality Management System, QMS01, a quality management system for laboratory services. And it, it has sorted all the regulatory and accreditation requirements of not only the four organizations I already mentioned today, but at least eight or nine more, including the international standard. And it has supported, uh, I'm sorry, it has sorted all of these requirements into easy to understand subjects, documents, equipment, assessments, personnel, facilities, safety, and makes it very easy for your laboratory to design a set of processes that fulfill those requirements, no matter which organization the requirement comes from. We know from experience that laboratories that live in a quality management system are more prepared for external assessments, especially the unannounced ones. And these laboratories also experience fewer deficiencies. So to wrap up this podcast now, I'm going to provide a list of resources to help you on your journey of reducing and eliminating deficiencies in your laboratory assessments. So first, free, go to the US government website, search for and download and just search for free CMS resources or free CLIA resources. You can also um, download for free 42 CFR part 493, which is the entire CLIA regulation. CLIA also has 11 brochures on common deficiency related topics such as proficiency testing, competence assessment, and laboratory director responsibilities. And there's one more um, document that labs don't access often enough, and it's called, quote, the CLIA Interpretive Guidelines for Laboratories. And it explains what's in 42 CFR 493 so that laboratories can um, better figure out what they need to do to meet the requirement. So first, go to the US government, government website and download a whole bunch of free stuff. But you have to read it and understand it too. Second, obtain a copy of the accreditation requirements for your selected accreditation organization and keep these current. So that would be the CAP checklist for each discipline in your laboratory. And if you are accredited, you know that by CAP, you know that those checklists are updated every year. 
and um, and you you will get them or you'll have access to them if you're accredited by the CAP. Then there is the AABB standards for blood banks and transfusion services. They are updated about every 18 months. And for each set of AABB standards, there is something called the assessment tool. And you can access that and it tells you for each standard what the assessor will look for when he or she comes on site. And the Joint Commission's CAM Lab manual itself for each one of the standards, it has a citing called the Elements of Performance. And it tells your laboratory what the surveyor is going to expect to see as the objective evidence that you met the requirement. So the CAP checklist, the AABB standards and the Joint Commission um, CAM Lab already tell you what you need to have to be ready for this. But it isn't a matter of running around like a chicken with your head cut off six months before the inspection or two months as I've been asked to come in two months before an inspection, help, help, help us see if we're ready for this inspection. That's not the point. The point is that you live these requirements by building the processes and procedures that are needed to, to ensure that the action in doing them fills the requirement. And third and last here, resources for meeting requirements. There are formal training programs offered by the education functions of the laboratory accreditation organizations, all of them, CAP, COLA, AABB and Joint Commission all have educational arms and they have online learning programs. In the olden days, we used to have face-to-face -face learning programs. They have booklets and pamphlets and things that are very helpful. And then I also mentioned already the fourth, um, which is consider becoming an institutional member of the Clinical Laboratory Standards Institute if your laboratory is not already a member because they, if you're an institutional member at reduced member prices, there are over 250 guidelines and standards that directly address the question, how do we meet the regulatory and accreditation requirements for this particular issue? And the issue is the title of the document. So let's last bit of my talk here. It's been said that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And it's the same for deficiencies. Unless you improve the process by ensuring that the action needed that meets the requirement is embedded in the process or procedure, not something extra you have to do to make CAP or AABB happy. You build the process to fulfill the requirement if you don't do that, you're going to keep having recurring deficiencies. And so I'll end with one of my favorite quotes when I give these kinds of lectures. If you always do what you've always done, you will always get what you've already got. So I hope I've provided some new and useful information that will help your laboratory avoid the top 10 and many other laboratory deficiencies as well. This ends my podcast now, and I'll turn the program back to April. Thank you, Lucy. You have given us a lot to think about in our own labs, and this information will be 
valuable for improving our lab's processes and results. Thank you, April and Lucy. Again, to obtain CE credit for this episode, please go to labducate.org slash courses. That's L-A-B-U-C-A-T-E dot O-R-G slash courses, where CE credit is free for ASCLS members. To listen to more Off the Bench episodes, please visit us on ASCLS.org slash Off the Bench. And be sure to visit the ASCLS Facebook page to join the discussion. Have a great one and see you guys next time.